This is a, a joy, as always, to be with you to open God's Word and to study uh, the truth and the rich truth of, of who Christ is and what He's designed specifically for His church. And so if you would take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, as we continue our study on a biblical understanding of elder leadership. You know, one of the most mind-boggling aspects of God's creation is the fact that everything operates according to a designed order. I mean, truly, everywhere we look, we see order. Through the uh, technological advances that God has allowed us to have through the use of things like telescopes, we can see into the, the vast far reaches of the galaxies. Through things like microscopes, we can dive down to the minute details of creation, even to the cellular level. And yet, no matter if you look up or if you look down to the, to the heights or to the, the smallest details, what you see over and over again is order. God has created this universe with order. It's woven into the fabric of creation. And so it makes sense then that if God has sovereignly chosen to design all of his universe according to order, that his local church would be designed with a certain order as well. And that order is what we're going to continue to look at this morning, specifically beginning a a two-week uh, series on the elder's role in the church. What is the elder's role? We've looked at his qualifications. We've looked at the fact that Christ is the head of the church. But what is the elder's role? Over the next two weeks, we'll be looking at that. And what we're going to find today as we look at the elder's role is that we can't look at the elder's role apart from how God has designed the, the complete operation of the church uh, as a whole. And so we'll see not only how elders are to function in the church, but how the church is to function, how you as members of this church are to function, and how when all the believers in the church are functioning in the way that God intends, the church is built up and matured and sanctified. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Our verses today really are going to be verse 7 and then verses 11 to 13. But for the sake of context, let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 4 and read down through verse 13. Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith 
and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Before we go further, please join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for this wonderful text. Lord God, we confess this morning that we, as always, are in need of your help to understand the word, to apply the word correctly. And so, God, we ask for that help. We ask that your spirit would illuminate the truth to us, that we would understand it as it's intended, and that then you would apply that to our hearts, that we might walk in further obedience to you. God, we ask that everything that's done this morning in the teaching of your word would be done for your glory and for your namesake. It's in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen. Now, you may remember, as we looked at Ephesians a couple of weeks ago, the general context of the book. But let me just quickly remind you, this wonderful letter of the Apostle Paul is broken into two halves. The first three chapters deal primarily with doctrinal matters, and the last three chapters deal with the application of that doctrine. And so as we turn the corner then into chapter 4, we are turning from primarily doctrinal concerns, although they're not left completely behind, but primarily from that to the application of that doctrine. And he begins with this overarching command in verse 1. He says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. It's an overarching command for the believer that in light of all the great doctrinal details precisely about our our salvation, how that was planned in eternity past, and how God brought that to be, in light of that, he says, now walk worthy of that salvation. Live the transformed life that is to be the result of true salvation. He begins in the first six verses dealing with our unity. So many times he uses the word one, one one body, one baptism, one faith, one Lord, one God. We are all one body of believers and therefore, Paul says, we're to live in unity and harmony with one another. And yet in verse 7, he turns his attention from our unity together as a corporate body to our individual giftedness. The fact that we are one body doesn't mean that God has not individually gifted us in different ways for the upbuilding of that body. And that's what he turns his attention to in verse 7. Look back at verse 7 there. He says, But to each one, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. In verse 8, he quotes from Psalm 68 and says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, what we're going to see as we look at verse 7 and then verses 11 to 13 is one really simple and yet helpful theme, and it's this. Christ edifies his church by giving to it leaders who equip each member to maximize their spiritual gift. Let me say that again. Christ edifies his church or builds up his church by giving to it leaders who equip each member to maximize their spiritual gift. Now, as we look at these verses, we're going to see two aspects of God's plan for his church. Aspect number one is in verse 7 that we just read, and it's this. Christ gives every believer a spiritual gift. Christ gives every believer a spiritual gift. Before we look specifically at the role of elders, we have to look at what Paul says about the giftedness that God has given to each individual believer because that will play directly into 
how the elders are then to function within the church. And there in verse 7, he says, To each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, he, he's turning the corner here, as I mentioned, with the word but in verse 7. He's moving from our, our unity in Christ to this individuality that still affects our unity. But individually, each one of us, he says, have received this gift. Each one of us. That is, every single blood-bought believer. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, then you have a spiritual gift that God has sovereignly ordained for you to have for the benefit of the body. But notice he doesn't say specifically a gift was given. He says the, the word he chooses here is grace was given. To each one of us, grace was given. Now, when we think of the word grace, automatically we typically think of what? Of salvation. Right? In giving salvation to us, that is, of course, the greatest expression of God's grace in his son, Jesus Christ. After all, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what we have to remember is that while that is true, that our salvation is the greatest expression of God's grace to us, God's grace doesn't end there. He continues to lavish grace upon grace on his people. And that's the idea here. In context, as we'll see, it, 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 Paul makes it clear that when he uses the word grace, in this context, he's not referring to our salvation, but to this spiritual gift. Both the gift and the measure in which the gift has been given to each individual Christian. Think of it this way. As our perfect head, Christ has sovereignly exercised his rule and care for the body... By giving to each member of his church a spiritual gift. And so you can already see this illustration of Christ as the head and we as the body working itself out. Just as our phys- in our physical bodies, our, our head sends signals to the other aspects of our body and gives animation to the different parts of our body for the, for the service and function of the body. In the same way, our head, Jesus Christ, gives giftedness to each believer that then Uh, cares for and serves the body as a whole. Now Paul's already used this word grace to refer to giftedness earlier in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3 verses 7 and 8, he talks about being given grace to preach. In verse 7, speaking of the gospel, he says, "...the gospel of which I was made a minister..." According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Paul, of course, received the the, the grace of Christ in his salvation. But he goes on to say, God also gave to me the grace of having the privilege of preaching that gospel specifically to the Gentiles. And so he uses the word grace here to refer to a gift that God had given to him. And he uses it again in that same way here in verse 7 to refer to the gifts that God has given to us. And that becomes even more clear when we read verse 8. Because to prove this, he turns to Psalm 68 verse 18 and he says this, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives... And here the word changes, and he gave gifts to men. 
When we tie these together, we understand that he's referring here in this grace of a spiritual giftedness given to each Christian. But notice also how he modifies this explanation in verse 7. To each one of us, grace was given how? According to the measure of Christ's gift. According to the measure of Christ's gift. What this refers to then is that God has not only ordained the spiritual gift that each of us would have in the body, but the measure of that gift. Some of us have the same spiritual gift, but in different measures, so that it functions in different ways within the life of the body, so that no part of the body is missed. Every part of the body, then, is cared for. Think of it this way. Many of you have the gift of teaching, but that doesn't mean that all of us are gifted in the same measure to teach every passage to every age group in every setting. Some of you have a, a very unique connection in your teaching with children. You, you thrive in that environment. Others of you would, would be terrified to teach fifth graders, right? But you would be happy to, be to teach a, a group of men or a group of women. There are those who are gifted to teach at the youth level specifically. They just seem to connect in teaching and explaining and applying the word in that environment. Others teach in our adult Sunday school, our equip class. Others teach from the pulpit. All have the gift of teaching, but in a different measure so that the entirety of the body is cared for. Some even have the gift of teaching in the, in the sense that one-on-one, they really thrive in communicating the truth across the table with another person, maybe through partners or something like that, where they, they really connect well and can explain the scriptures in a helpful way in that setting. That is a form of the gift of teaching. And so you see, we may all have, uh, we may all, many of us share the same gifts, and yet there's a uniqueness to that gifting because of the measure in which Christ gives it in order for the body to be cared for holistically. It's important to understand the gifts are not in competition with one another. They're given intentionally in different measures for the care of the body. And that's because that's what the body needs to grow and mature to become a healthy, unified, Christ-honoring body of believers. Now, the topic of spiritual gifts is one that we could do an entire series on, and that's really outside the scope of our intention this morning. So I'm not going to, unfortunately, be able to go through the different spiritual gifts and what they may be and categories and things like that, although we will do that at some point, I'm sure, in the future. But let me just give you a summary, because the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, categorizes all spiritual gifts into two broad categories. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. Peter writes, As each one of you has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who's speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice there in verse 11, Peter breaks all of the spiritual gifts down into two broad categories. Whoever speaks and whoever serves. So there are, there are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. And 
and there's a variety of those gifts. And the truth is we don't even have an exhaustive list, I don't believe, in Scripture of all the different unique ways in which God gifts his people. But we have examples. And those examples fall into these broad categories. You either have a speaking gift, a teaching gift at some level, or a serving gift in which there's administration and management and care behind the scenes for the people of God. And they fall into those categories. And, of course, we see that happening all across our church, don't we? Even this morning, we've had people teaching our children. We've had people teaching here and equip. I'm teaching now from the pulpit. We, we've had people serving behind the scenes so that all the chairs are set up that you're sitting in and the microphones are working because people got here and they served in those ways. We've had people praying for others in the body. We've had, through our fellowship, opportunities to encourage and to have show mercy and grace to one another. The service is happening in the church already, and we see that week in and week out. In addition, it's important to understand, as I said before, that the gifts are not in competition with one another, and they're not to be necessarily elevated one over the other. We see this in really a comical illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 15 to 18, Paul writes, if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. It's not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. You think about your own physical body. Every single part of your body plays a crucial role, and if it fails to do its role, the rest of the body suffers negatively because of that. That's the idea here. Really, there are two primary applications that rise to the surface as we think about what Paul has said here, and let me just give them to you quickly. Number one is what I just said, that every gift is essential to the health and function of the body. Every gift is essential. Your gifts are essential. In the same way that your body has to compensate, your physical body, if something's not working rightly, the, the body of Christ has to compensate when gifted members of the church are not using their gifts within the local body. This passage reminds us that church is not a spectator event. We don't come to church simply to take, but to, but to give, to worship the Lord and to serve the Lord as we serve others. And by the way, that doesn't require you to be on an official ministry team that has a title and a name with a name tag. That can be a way to serve. But really, it involves a frame of thinking about what church is. Coming intentionally, ready to be of service to the body. To love and care for other people intentionally. To go out of your way to serve in whatever way your hand finds to serve. But secondly, another implication of this is there's no room for pride or envy when it comes to spiritual gifts. Because, remember, what does Paul say here? To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. They are spiritual gifts. By nature, there's, there's no room for pride over the particular gifts that we have. And in, in the same token, there's no room for jealousy and envy over the fact that we don't have a gift that someone else has or we don't have a gift in the same measure that they have. 
That's up to Christ. This is not a competition, and it's not a reward for faithfulness. The indication is that a Christian, upon being baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit, is given a spiritual gift. That's just a gracious gift of God. And so if we aren't careful, though, we can, we can see different gifts as, as better than others and pridefully feel as if we are in a more important place in the church or other people need to be doing what we're doing or looking across the aisle with jealousy because we're not able to do what someone else can do. Those sinful perspectives tear down the unity and maturity of Christ's church. No, we have to understand these are gifts and they're given to us in the measure of Christ's Sovereign choice. But let me also make one more important point about this. When we talk about the measure of giftedness given to us, that does not mean that we can't grow in the use of our gifts. I want you to think of it this way. Though spiritual gifts are are not to be confused with aptitudes or, or physical abilities, We can illustrate the growth in our gifts with an illustration of physical fitness. Each of us has the capacity to become more physically stronger than we currently are if we would dedicate ourselves to to some regimen of exercise and, and diet. But at the same time, though that's true, there is a limit to that progress. There's a certain measure that God's given to each of us physically. And we we can capitalize upon that and push that to its furthest extremes. But the truth is, no matter what regimen I'm on, no matter what I eat, honestly, no matter what foreign substance I'm willing to put in my body, I will never, ever look like Arnold Schwarzenegger at his peak. Right? Why are you laughing at that? It's not within the package that God has given to me. But... That doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to maximize whatever giftedness God has given to us. And so, God has given us a measure of a gift in our spiritual giftedness. But we ought to work hard to grow in the use of that gift so that it becomes more and more beneficial to the church. Now, that brings up a question. How has Christ ensured that each gifted believer will mature and grow in the use of their giftedness. That brings us to aspect number two, and it's here that we begin to see how the role of elders comes into play into God's plan for the church. Aspect number two, Christ gives his church gifted leaders. Now I realize in in jumping to verse 11, we're skipping over verses 8, 9, and 10. That's not because they're not important, It's just simply because we don't have time to give them justice. Verses 8, 9, and 10 are are really a a proof from the Old Testament, from Psalm 68, verse 18, of this fact that Christ gave gifts to the church. And he uses an illustration there of of a, a victorious king who has, upon returning to his city, is giving gifts from the spoil of his victory uh, to the people. That's essentially, in a nutshell, the summary of what's being said there. And so we'll leave that for another day, but I want you to see where the passage picks back up in verse 11. Verse 11 says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now, this is where Paul's flow of thought picks up again from verse 7. 
And I, I realize if you were here a couple of weeks ago, hopefully that, that verse sounds very familiar because we spent a lot of time dissecting verse 11 in and of itself. So I'm not going to do that today because there's an entire message there. You can go and listen to that on a case for elder rule. But let me just give you the summary again as we go into verses 12 and 13. Here in verse 11, Paul outlines four offices or roles for his church. Uh, they are apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Now, those first two offices, apostles and prophets, were part of the New Testament church. They, they existed during that time, but, but ceased because their role was fulfilled upon the death of the apostle John, the last apostle. We see those gifts dying there with the apostles and even the New Testament prophets, that giftedness dying out. Uh, in a similar time frame as the end of the, the last apostle's life. That's because through their ministry, remember as we said, we have the fruit of that ministry here in the New Testament. Theirs was a, a, a ministry of, of revelation. God gave us the New Testament, the, the foundation of the church, Christ being the cornerstone, uh, through their ministry of revelation. But the other two offices, evangelist and pastor-teacher, are still active in the church today. Evangelist, as we said, is, is probably more along the lines of a missionary, as we would say, at a, a church planting missionary, to be specific. Um, and then pastor teachers are what we call pastors or elders in each local church. Now, that's all that I'll say about that. But with that in mind, what we want to look at now is what Paul says about the role of those pastor teachers specifically. What, what is it? What's the purpose for which God gave these different offices to his church? I want you to see two key details about Christ's motivation for giving leaders to his church. Detail number one we'll call the purpose of giving gifted leaders. The purpose. Look back at verse 12. Remember in verse 11, the verb, and he gave, then verse 12, for. And so he gave these offices, these gifted leaders, for this purpose, verse 12 says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Now, there are other roles of the elder and we'll look at those next week. But this is one of the primary roles for every pastor or elder in the church. It's a ministry of equipping, for the equipping of the saints. That word equipping in this context carries the idea of training. The equipping or the training of the saints. And specifically, he says it is the saints or the, the people of God, all the redeemed, who are to be equipped every true believer. And so the elder then has an equipping ministry in the local church in which he serves to equip the believers, the saints that God has brought together there. And it's for a very specific purpose. What exactly are the elders or pastors to be training or equipping the saints to do? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service. The work of service. And so think of it this way, the elders are to use the gifts that God has given them of teaching and shepherding to, to equip the believers in the local church 
to maximize their spiritual gifts to accomplish the work of ministry in the church. That, that's the organization that Christ has designed for every local church. In verse 7, as we saw, every Christian's given a spiritual gift and a measure of that gift. They are to maximize that measure of their giftedness for the benefit of the church. And Christ has helped in that process by giving elders to the church who can equip them to use that gift and to use it to the maximum capacity as they mature in the use of that gift. You know, unfortunately, many think that it's the job of pastors and elders to do the work of ministry, while the members of the church simply enjoy that ministry. Many think that that's what church is. Your role is just to come and receive, and then the, the paid staff or the elders, they, they put on ministry, and you benefit from that ministry, and that's how it works. The problem is that's not at all what the Bible says. The, the scriptures instead frame it much differently. In fact, Christ says the elders are primarily through two means, through the word of God and prayer, are to be equipping the people continually to use their gifts to do the work of ministry. And through that, the church grows and it matures and is unified. We see these two primary tools of the word of God and prayer modeled for us in the apostles in Acts chapter 6. You remember there was a an issue with caring for widows, and certain widows were being overlooked. And so they appointed some gifted men and gifted in the area of administration to take care of those widows so that the apostles then could devote themselves to something else. Acts 6 verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The elders then follow that model of using those same two primary tools to care for and equip the body, prayer and the word of God. We see this, of course, as an implication of how Paul describes the value of Scripture to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul says, all Scripture is inspired, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Notice that the scriptures are profitable for, for all of these things to prepare a person to be equipped for every good work. The scriptures are then sufficient for the equipping of the saints. This again is why the gift of teaching is required of all elders. It's because it's through the teaching of the word that the elder will fulfill one of his primary roles, which is the equipping of the saints through the teaching of the scriptures. Now let's talk about this for a moment. How does this work practically? How, through the ministry of teaching, are the people equipped to more effectively use their gifts? Let me see if I can give you some examples. Think about it this way. How effective... Will a person who has the gift of evangelism, for example, how effective will that person be if his or her personal understanding of the gospel is superficial and shallow? How well are they going to use that gift of evangelism if, if they struggle to really articulate the fullness of the gospel in, in the way that they should? How effective will they be in the use of the gift of evangelism if they fail to demonstrate Christ-like character in the way they approach people when they're sharing the gospel? 
so that perhaps they're saying the right words, but they're exhibiting hostility in their character that really tears down the message because of the way it's sinfully shared. What about a person who has the gift of administration? Let's say we put a person who has an administrative gift over an event, like a men's event or a women's event. How effective will they be in the use of that gift if they've not been equipped and trained to understand that the event is not an end in and of itself, but the event is really for the upbuilding of the people. It's for their spiritual good. That's why we're having the event. How effective will they be if they simply push their own agenda for the event and run over everyone else that's serving with them to accomplish their goals and their dream for that event instead of demonstrating Christ-like care, humility, and love for the people they're serving with? Similarly, how, will, how effective will someone be in their teaching gift? They may have a gift of teaching, but if they have poor theology and a misunderstanding of hermeneutics, how is that teaching going to be helpful and effective for the, the body? So you see, the elders are to come along and equip the people by teaching them the full counsel of God's word so that they, they have a right doctrinal understanding and they have a right understanding of the character of a true Christian and how those two things mesh together so that we accomplish the work of ministry in the right way, doctrinally, but also in the right way, demonstrating the character of Christ. You see how it happens. This is how this all-sufficient word of God equips every believer to use their gift in a way that truly upbuilds the body. And when that's happening, then we begin to work in concert with one another as the Holy Spirit equips us to use our gifts through the word and the church is built up. You know, some of the most famous coaches in both college level and professional level are, are legendary because they are masters of identifying the particular giftedness of the players on their roster and getting the most out of those players according to their package of skills and putting that together into a game plan that can be effective against their opponent. In a, in a similar way, although much more important because we're talking about Christ church, Elders are most effective when they lead by helping the members understand their giftedness and then understand how the scriptures apply to that giftedness so that it's used effectively and rightly within the church. You know, one of the sad realities of the seeker church movement is it created a model in which people were trained to think of church as, as primarily about receiving something instead of giving something. They came to be blessed by the ministry of the professionals and then went back to their regular lives. The problem is there are no professionals in the church. We all have a role to play, and they're all important. And when we understand that and we begin to think of, of being together as coming to give to God worship and to serve God by serving one another, now the church begins to function in the way that God intended. So the role of the elders then is to teach the people and to pray fervently for the people. And through those two primary means, the people are then built up in Christ. They are able to recognize and maximize their spiritual gift, and the body grows because of it. Now when that happens, Paul explains that certain effects naturally take place in the church. We should expect that when a church operates in the way that God intends, that will have certain positive results. 
Well, Paul tells us what those are in this second detail. Detail number two, the effects of giving gifted leaders. What are the effects when not only the leaders are equipping, but the people are responding to that equipping by using their gifts in the church? Well, there are three that we're going to highlight here in our time that remains. The first effect, Paul says, is edification. Edification. We see that here in verse 13. Actually, the end of verse 12. For, so he gave these gifted men for, verse 12, the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. To the building up of the body of Christ. That word building up is the same word for to edify. And so edification. You know, often when we think about building the church or church growth, our minds turn first and foremost to evangelism, sharing the gospel and, and new believers, new disciples being brought into the church. And of course, that is one of the ways the church grows, and we are to be sharing the gospel so that new disciples are being made and brought into the local church, of course. But that's not the only way that the church grows, and it's not the primary thing that Paul has in mind here as he's explaining how the church is to function. Here, he's talking about the edification of the church in the sense of it growing into a mature body. And so it's, it's, it's growth upward of the Christians within the church as each individual uh, believer is equipped and, and serves and the word is taught and we are growing in our, our understanding of the scripture and our application of the scripture, the church grows in the sense of maturity. And of course that will affect our evangelism which will also cause the church to grow with new believers being brought in. This ties back into the passage that we studied a few weeks ago from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 22, or 19 to 22 where Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing. Notice that, present tense. Is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God, in the spirit through the provision of the elders using their gifts to equip the people and the people effectively using their gifts to serve the body Christ causes the growth of the body upward uh, through the maturation of his people as well as the addition of new believers through the process of evangelism but there's a, a second effect not only is the church edified or built up but we see the effect of unification. The unity of the church is affected. Look back now at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity. And he's going to list two aspects of unity here. This is going to continue happening until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. As people are equipped with the word and they begin serving one another, that begins to build a deep, binding unity among God's people. But notice that Paul says specifically it's a unity built upon a common faith until we all attain to the unity of the faith. 
We are those as Christians who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ through the glorious gospel. The good news that Jesus came preaching and purchasing for his people. We stand on a common faith. We're a people who have not only been redeemed by the gospel and therefore have a love for the gospel, but we have an increasing love for the entirety of God's revelation, for the whole counsel of Scripture. And so as we are taught and instructed in the Word of God, we, we share a deeper connection in that common faith. And through that common faith and the deepening of that faith, we deepen our unity with one another. This is why there is no true unity apart from doctrinal unity. Unity must begin standing upon our common faith, beginning with the gospel, but then going on to all things that Christ commanded us. But not only is unity promoted through our common faith, it's also promoted by our knowledge of Christ Jesus himself. Look back at the text there in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith... And of the knowledge of the Son of God. This word knowledge here in context indicates an intimate, personal knowledge. And and the idea is that as we are deepening, each of us, in our personal love and knowledge of Christ through a personal relationship with Him, through the study of His Word, as that deepens, so our unity deepens. As we move closer to Christ, we move closer to one another. We love Christ and therefore we love the people of Christ. And so the deeper our love goes for Christ, the deeper our love for his people goes as well. And so we see this unity deepening as we all grow in our common faith and in our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, he is the reason we're here. He's the reason we live this way. He's the reason we care about the church. It's because it's Christ's church. We love him. And as we deepen in our love for him, we deepen in our shared unity. Now I have to pause here for a moment just to highlight this important truth. and That in order for you personally to be a part of this great unity, this great common faith, you personally have to come to the knowledge of the Son of God. You have to come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to come to understand why Christ came. Christ came in the first place because of our sin. It's because we were desperately in need of the salvation of God. We have sinned against a holy God. The Bible says we're guilty because of our sin. We deserve the punishment of God's wrath for our sin. If God gave us what we deserved, if he gave us justice, we would spend eternity in hell separated from him. That's the truth. That's the truth of the matter, our condition apart from Christ. And so God in his grace sent his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, to live a perfect life, a sinless life, and to offer his life on purpose, intentionally, to pay for the sins of his people. And then to rise again from the grave on the third day. And the Bible says that anyone who will place their trust, their faith in this Jesus, repenting of their sins and putting their faith in him alone as their only hope of salvation, that one will be saved from God's wrath over their sin and united to Christ and therefore the body of Christ, the church. 
And only when you come to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to share this common faith do you receive the benefits. To be honest, only then do you even understand what we're talking about. When we talk about this common faith and this deepening of our unity and why that matters, you must first repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. And then you too will be in Christ and in the body of Christ. And you can deepen in this unity that we're discussing together. But that's where it must begin. It can't happen apart from a common faith and a deepening knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's one more natural effect that happens when a church functions according to Christ's plan. Effect number three is maturation. Maturation. The church matures. Looking back at the text again, verse 13, he says, until. He begins verse 13 with that word, until. But there's more than one thought connected to that. First, we saw unity until we all attain to the unity. But then he goes on, until we all attain to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This wonderful plan that Christ has for his church is his plan for how he will mature the church into a deepening likeness to Christ. This is his intentional plan. It's always been his plan. We understand, I hope you understand, that Christ didn't save you and then simply leave you there. His goal always has been that we would not only have the imputed righteousness of Christ, that is, an, a righteousness that doesn't belong to us, it's, it's given to us, it's imputed to us, it's Christ's righteousness so that God sees us through his righteousness. That's how we are justified. That's how we are saved. But at that point, he begins the process of sanctification in which we actually begin to be made righteous. And in the end, that's going to culminate in glorification in which we are made perfectly righteousness, or righteous so that we share the righteousness of Christ not only in being, in being imputed to us, but we'll be actually righteous in our character, free from sin. That's God's plan for his church, his bride. Go read Ephesians 5 and this, this beautiful picture of, of how a husband's to love his wife is wrapped up in how Christ loves his church. He washes her with the water of the word that he might present her to himself without spot or blemish. That is his plan for the church. And he accomplishes that plan in part through this inner working of the elders equipping the people to use their gifts and the people effectively use those gifts to serve one another. And as we do that, the church grows in maturity into the stature of Christ. Look at that. Look at that explanation. He says, first of all, to a mature man, but then he describes what he means by a mature man with this phrase, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We could, spend, uh, we could spend an entire series just focusing on what that idea brings to mind. The fullness of Christ. This is what he is accomplishing in his church through this process. And so it continues on and on again, not only producing unity, but maturity. So that the church reflects more and more the character of of Christ. Now we understand that that will not be perfect until the Lord brings us to himself. But we also have to understand that by Paul saying this, he's indicating that there is a sense in which, not perfectly, but 
truly we can reach maturity in this life. We are to be mature believers that, that reflect the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, not perfectly, but in a mature, faithful way. Now, let me just say for a moment how my heart has been encouraged in walking back through this text because we already see this happening here. I'm so thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the way that you serve. This is a church that serves. You serve others. You, you, you use your gifts on Sundays. You use your gifts throughout the week. I love that often I will call someone or go visit someone who's in the hospital or are going through a very difficult time only to hear from them stories of how many of you have already been, have already called, have already sent gifts. I love to be a part of this church where this is already happening. So don't, don't take this message as me uh, rebuking you because we don't see this happening. We see this happening. Take this message as an encouragement, as Paul would say, to excel still more. Excel still more. Continue to grow in maximizing your gifts for the benefit of the church, for the glory of Christ, until we all reach the fullness of the stature of Christ into a mature Man. Now, Paul actually goes on and continues to give descriptions of how this uh, plays out, the effects of this in the church. And unfortunately, we don't have time to walk through them in the detail that we have uh, so far. But I do want to read it to you. Let's just read verses 14 to 16 and look at some of the other results that happen in a church when we take this seriously. Verse 14 As a result, we're no longer to be children. Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This is the result that happens. A church that has grown in maturity stands firm in the face of adversity and false doctrine, he says. No longer are you blown here and there by every, every scheme of man, every false doctrine that attacks the church because you're rooted in doctrine. You've been equipped and trained in right doctrine. Not only that, but notice that it results in a church who now is not, not tempted by false doctrine or error, but speaks truth, it says, with one another, but it also does it in love, so that there's right doctrine being spoken with right character matched with it, so that we're a right reflection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is what happens in a church as it matures and grows in obedience to this God-ordained process. But notice, I love this, in verse 16 again, he highlights how important our relationships with one another are for the mutual edification of the body. He says, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, that's each individual member of the church, according to the proper working of each individual part. So each part is serving. They're doing their part to serve with the gift that God's given. Notice what happens. Christ causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. It's an amazing process. We see this is how a healthy church functions. It's how a healthy church grows. 
in a mature body, a high percentage of the people in the church are serving. In a mature church, it's not 20% doing 80% of the work. Instead, there's a mutual joint commitment out of love for Christ and love for one another that compels us to get involved and to use our gifts to serve one another. Now, as we think about applying this specifically to ourselves, there are just two practical applications I want to draw our minds to this morning as we bring this to a close. Number one is obvious. Elders must embrace this equipping ministry. Elders have to embrace this mindset. And honestly, you need to embrace this mindset about what the elder's role is. I and the other elders have to be committed to this all-important work of equipping the saints through the ministry of prayer and the word. And the reason that that's challenging is because we're surrounded by an evangelical culture that often views the primary purpose of ministry as developing programs instead of equipping people. And when we do that, often we we have so many programs, many of them, honestly, are great programs in and of themselves, but we get so many programs, and and the the emphasis is, is so much on build, 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 that the elders end up then just simply doing administration, trying to keep the programs running, instead of actually being with the people and equipping the people through the word and prayer. Now, don't, don't get me wrong, there's, there's nothing wrong with, with great events or programs, and there are some programs that can be used as part of that equipping ministry. So I'm not saying that programs in and of themselves are wrong or sinful, but I am saying we have to avoid the constant pressure to add new things, add new things, add new things, because we can quickly become just a program-driven church instead of a church that's really busy equipping the people for the work of ministry. That may mean, by the way, honestly, that that you may come to us at some point with a great idea for a new ministry or a new program that truly is an excellent idea. But the reality is, at that time, the elders don't have the shepherding bandwidth to add that ministry and still do the equipping ministries that God's called them to do. And so we may have to say no or not yet. And if we do that, understand that's driven by a desire to focus on what Christ has said is most important, not because we think your idea is bad or would be ineffective. So you can help us in that way through your prayers and through your patience as we seek to be faithful as best we can to the model Christ has outlined for his church. But secondly, the most obvious application after that is that believers must employ their spiritual gifts. In order for us to fulfill Christ's plans for his church, each and every member of the church has to take seriously and own God's call for you to use your gifts for the benefit of his church. And so if perhaps you come this morning and you've trained yourself or been trained that you come to church primarily to receive instead of to to give and worship to the Lord and in service to God's people, then I pray that this message has been an opportunity to reset that, to re-understand, refocus your attention on what God has said the church is really all about. And while it's certainly true, don't get me wrong, we are all edified, we all receive every Sunday morning when we come and spend time together. That, that happens, but that's not our personal focus. Our personal focus is to be coming ready to worship God, to pour out to Him and, and singing to Him, and listening and responding to his word, and then also to use the gifts he's given us, whatever they may be, in even the smallest of ways, 
to serve and benefit the body as a whole. And so very practically, if you're here this morning and, and you're thinking on this and realizing that perhaps you're not either involved at all or not in ways that you really know you should be, then I would encourage you to do a couple of things. One, if you haven't joined the church, join the church. We, we, we require folks to join before they join an official ministry team uh, because it gives us a chance to know you and for you to know us. It's an official way for the elders to know who are the people that have committed themselves to this church that we are then tasked with shepherding and equipping. And so we ask you to, to do that and then plug in and begin to serve. But understand, as I said before, service in the church is, is not just about being on an official team. It's about being prayed up and ready for Sunday morning. I encourage you to begin to prepare for Sunday morning on Saturday night. Begin praying for how God could use you to be a blessing. That simply can be walking in the door and just looking for someone that's by themselves and going over and striking up a conversation and getting past how are you and how's the weather into ways you can pray for them and care for them and serve them. It could be as simple as inviting your neighbor to church and if they come, taking them to lunch and sharing the gospel with them over lunch. I mean, there, there are myriads of ways to use your gifts within the church and we'd encourage you to do that. Find a way to be involved. We have lots and lots of them. But pray specifically for opportunities to use the gifts that God's given you here in this church, and God will provide those opportunities. But my prayer for us as we think about this passage is that North Lake Bible Church would continue to be, and increasingly be, a church that's committed to the pattern that God has given to his church, and that through that, God would edify us, unify us, and mature us in the faith until we all attain to the fullness of the stature of Christ. What a wonderful goal to strain for, to strive for, and I'm so thankful God's designed it that we do it together as a body of believers. So let's commit ourselves to that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for this clear pattern that you have set for your church. God, we are, we are thankful that it's not up to us ultimately to build the church. It is you who have committed yourself to building the church. And the church will be built. And not even Satan himself will be able to stand in its way. And yet, wonderfully and graciously, you involve us in that process by commanding us to use the gifts that you yourself have given us for the benefit of the church. And through our feeble attempts to use the gifts you've given, you cause that by your grace to, to build up the body, to, to add new members to the body as the gospel is shared, and to grow the members of the church as the full counsel of God is is brought to bear on our lives. God, we're so thankful to be your people, to be a part of your church. And God, we ask that you would help this church to remain faithful to the model that you've given and not to be distracted or to go wayward or off course because of, of popular models that are in competition with yours. Help us to be faithful to what you've given. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.